Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. Daniel from the lion's den. Also delivered Jonah from the belly of the whale and then three. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some pizza. Because I'm not even sure what year it is. What with all the time traveling I'm currently and have been and will be doing for this here decades dive. I'm a little under the weather, so if I sound all sick and weird, it's because I've taken enough Coracetin to take down a baby rhinoceros. Hello, it's me, Reese Hendrick, host of Science Factual, and for this episode, we're hopping in H.G. Wells' old time machine for a decades dive into early science fiction pieces, both written and filmed, leading up through the year 1919. Joining us on our journey will be certified human and all-around interesting fella, Tim James. We sat down in his charming home in southeast Portland to discuss some of the earliest pieces of science fiction, and not only how they translated the world around us at the time, but how they impacted our perception of society and technological development as well. You know, this is one of those rare instances where I won't be issuing out a... Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Aside from the fact that I guess I just did, but I won't be getting too far into any one piece of literature or film. Now, that's not to say that I won't be getting into some details of the more prominent pieces, but I will be listing quite a few that I won't be getting into, aside from an honorable mention. So without further ado, let's get into some examples of the origins of science fiction as a genre. The literary genre of science fiction is diverse, living under the umbrella of speculative fiction along with fantasy fiction, horror fiction, and alternative history works, and its exact definition remains a contested question among both scholars and nerds alike. This lack of consensus is reflected in debates about the genre's history, particularly over determining its exact origins. There are two broad camps of thought. The first identifies the genre's roots in early fantastical works such as the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh, with the earliest cuneiform text versions emerging between 2150 and 2000 BCE. Now, there are a number of ancient or early modern texts, including a great many epics and poems that contained fantastical or science fictional elements, yet were written before the emergence of science fiction as a distinct genre. These texts often include elements such as a fantastical voyage to the moon or the use of imagined advanced technology. Although fantastical and science fiction-like elements and imagery exist in stories such as Ovid's Metamorphosis, the Old English epic heroic poem Beowulf, and the Middle German epic poem Nibelugenleid, their relative lack of references to science or technology puts them closer to fantasy rather than science fiction, an important distinction to make because a second approach argues that science fiction only became possible sometime between the 17th and early 19th centuries following the scientific revolution and major discoveries in astronomy, physics, and mathematics. Science fiction developed and boomed in the 20th century as the deep integration of science and inventions into daily life encouraged a greater interest in literature that explores the relationship between technology, society, and the individual. 
Scholar Robert Scholes called the history of science fiction, quote, the history of humanity's changing attitudes towards space and time, the history of our growing understanding of the universe, and the position of our species in that universe. In recent decades, the genre has diversified and become firmly established as a major influence on global culture and thought. So, starting things off, you may have an idea of some more prominent pieces that help define the genre, like Mary Wollstonecroft's Shelley's Frankenstein, which is often credited as being the first true science fiction novel, and other titles like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. But oddly enough, Francois-Marie Arouette, aka Voltaire, and before I go any further, my apologies to any French listeners out there, uh, but yes, I do mean French philosopher Voltaire, who could be considered one of the first science fiction writers thanks to a piece he wrote in 1752 called Micromegas, in which an alien from Saturn and an alien from a star near Sirius come to Earth, where they are enormous in size. They explore the Earth and have trouble finding life forms because, to them, a whale is the size of a flea. They eventually realize in one part that a tiny speck of wood on the ground is actually a ship and it's full of living things, at which point they make contact, so really it's like a first contact story. However, there are other direct examples of science fiction pieces that date back as early as 1516. A quick reading list of these early stories includes work of varying canonicity, such as Thomas More's Utopia from 1516, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis from 1627, Johannes Kepler's Somnium from 1634, Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World from 1666, Hail Satan, Henry Neville's The Island of Pines from 1688, and Jonathan Swift's Gulliver Travels from 1726. These pieces have a bit more of an ambiguous connection with science fiction as opposed to a hard science fiction like something from Asimov, so a lens of interpretation would benefit a reader looking to make those less overt connections. Though obscure today, Francis Godwin's The Man in the Moon, that's M-O-O-N-E, captivated 17th century readers with its tale of a Spaniard who travels in a ship powered by geese. He flies through space, which for the first time in literature is depicted as weightless, then spends time with the denizens of a lunar civilization, only to leave for an almost equally exotic and technologically marvelous land called China. The story's blend of natural philosophy, travel narrative, and the utopian and picaresque genres delighted English and European audiences. It also influenced literary stars for centuries. The French author Savignen de Cyrano de Bergerac poked fun at the book in his satirical 1657 novel The Other World. Edgar Allan Poe referenced the novel in his 1835 story The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Fall and H.G. Wells' 1901 novel The First Men in the Moon was directly inspired by Godwin. Godwin, Cavendish, and their contemporaries are important for generating a freely speculative space of imagination, which is still science fiction's role today. In constructing worlds, or birthing paper bodies as Cavendish called them, the author's acts of envisioning possible futures had a tangible impact on how reality actually took shape. What the scientific revolution did, writes the British historian Keith Thomas in the incredibly long titled Religion and the Decline of Magic, Studies in Popular Belief in 16th and 17th Century England, was to buttress up the old rationalist attitude with a more stable intellectual foundation. That is, science fiction wasn't always derivative of scientific explanations themselves. Even before science had fully defined itself, literature offered a means for thinking about science. The capacity to envision alternative social arrangements, in particular, makes science fiction arguably the literary genre with the most revolutionary potential. 
And within that potential lie fantastical stories and their authors waiting to be unleashed on the unsuspecting masses, much like the technological revolution that was unfolding as the stories we regard as classics began to take shape and mold the imagination of the world. Most notably, we have the aforementioned Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, which, being written in 1818, deals with the burgeoning ubiquity of electricity, the study of anatomy and physiology, and how the global scale was becoming much smaller amid industrialization and trade advancements. The story details the hubris of a young scientist who experiments in a laboratory to bring to life a sapient creature of his own design. Though Frankenstein is infused with elements of the gothic novel and the romantic movement, Brian Aldiss has argued for regarding it as the first true science fiction story. In contrast to previous stories with fantastical elements resembling those of later science fiction, Aldiss states the central character makes a deliberate decision and turns to modern experiments in the laboratory to achieve fantastic results. The novel has had a considerable influence on literature and on pop culture, and has spawned a complete genre of horror stories, films, and plays. Other important works of science fiction from the 19th century include The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells, Journey of the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne, Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fall by Edgar Allan Poe, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne, Erevan by Samuel Butler, The Last Man by Mary Shelley, The Coming Race by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, The Case of Summerfield by William Henry Rhodes, The Land of the Changing Sun by William N. Harbin, The Brick Moon by Edward Everett Hale, The Mortal Immortal by Mary Shelley, a Tale of Negative Gravity by Frank R. Stockton, The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells making another appearance on the list, and The Horla by Guy de Maupassant. Now, that's not a definitive list or all of the science fiction that was written in the 19th century, but it's definitely a good start. Getting into the realm of early film, let's kick things off with Les Voyages dans la Lune, or Trip to the Moon by Georges Méliès. That's the one with the famous scene of the face on the moon getting a rocket stuck in its eye, which also happens to be the image I sourced for Science Factual's branding. Which, I hesitate to call it that for IP purposes, but I'm pretty sure that the image is public domain by now. Should probably look into that. Inspired by a wide variety of sources including Jules Verne's 1865 novel From the Earth to the Moon and its 1870 sequel Around the Moon, the film follows a group of astronomers which peep this crew, Nostradamus, Alco Frisbus, Omega, Micromegas, and Periferagaramus, that is a thick-ass crew right there, who all travel to the moon in a cannon-propelled capsule, explore the moon's surface, escape from an underground group of selenites, which are lunar inhabitants, and return to Earth with a captive selenite. Its ensemble cast of French theatrical performers is led by Méliès himself as the main character, Professor Barben Fouilly. The film features the overly theatrical style for which Méliès became famous. Scholars have commented upon the film's extensive use of pataphysical and anti-imperialist satire, as well as on its wide influence on later filmmakers and its artistic significance within the French theatrical Féorie Tradition. Seriously, I cannot apologize enough for murdering the French tongue throughout this entire episode. Though the film disappeared into obscurity after Méliès's retirement from the film industry, it was rediscovered around 1930, when Méliès's importance to the history of cinema was beginning to be recognized by film devotees. 
An original hand-colored print was discovered in 1993 and restored in 2011. Other films leading into the turn of the 20th century include a string of hits by Méliès, like his adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1907 and Long Distance Wireless Photography from 1908. Then we have The Invisible Thief by Segundo de Chamon from 1909 and The Excursion to the Moon from 1908, as well as A Trip to Jupiter from 1909, also by Segundo de Chamon. I gotta say, not the most inventive titles from the jump, but hey, the training wheels were still on the genre and things do start to look a little better getting into the 1910s. which was the decade when the feature film established itself as the global industry standard, significantly adding budget, production value, prestige, and narrative depths to movies. The horrors of World War I also prompted filmmakers to seek out science fiction as a format for telling stories as metaphors, resulting in a number of groundbreaking genre films. Here are 10 films that helped define science fiction on the silver screen. At number 10, we have An Interplanetary Marriage. This 1910 short film about a scientist and a girl from Mars getting married on the moon is Italy's first science fiction film. It's derivative of Méliès' 1902 film A Trip to the Moon, sporting nicely designed spaceships, splendid miniature work, well-made animation, and passable matte paintings. The film came at a time when trends were shifting from the theatrical decor and staging of the Méliès school to greater realism. Up next at number 9 we have Frankenstein. The first Frankenstein movie, made in 1910, turns the monster metaphysical rather than physical, but the gruesome special effects in the creation scene is fleshy enough. Produced by the powerful Edison Studios and directed by Jade Spiral Dolly, this 14 minutes long rendition of Frankenstein is the only American film on our list, illustrating that in the 1910s, science fiction films were very much a European affair. <laughs> At number 8 we have Conquest of the Pole, which is Georges Méliès' last science fiction film. Released in 1912, it was a magnificent swan song for an era of filmmaking. Perhaps his most accomplished film technically, and one of his longest movies, close to 45 minutes in its original running time, the story follows teams from several countries trying to reach the South Pole in a number of fantastical vehicles, with an international crew setting out in the Aerobus built by the engineer Mabul, played by Méliès himself. After meetings and preparations, the team sets out on a long, long flight across the heavens, passing a multitude of constellations and planets before they crash land on the pole, where they battle a wacky ice giant. Seems like they were having fun. At number 7, we have The Tales of Hoffman. Hoffman's Erzalungen is the first German sci-fi film and the first feature film involving a robot. The background is a bit complex, as the movie is actually based on an 1881 opera written by Jacques Offenbach, which in turn is a standalone story loosely based on three short stories by the influential German horror author E.T.A. Hoffman. They are The Sandman, The Cremona Violin, and The Lost Reflection, making three chapters about love lost in a supernatural or mysterious way, tied together by a protagonist called Hoffman. Coming in at number 6, we have A Message from Mars, which is Great Britain's first sci-fi feature film, which was made in 1913 and is a variation on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, with a Martian visiting a selfish Scrooge instead of Christmas spirits. Number 5 is a film called The Pirates of 1920. Pirates of the air get more than they bargained for when they kidnap a resourceful damsel in this well-made British short feature film from 1911. 
Very loosely based on the Jules Verne novel Robur the Conqueror, the film follows a band of futuristic pirates in an airship who rob an ocean liner and kidnap a damsel who shows that she can certainly take matters into her own hands, after her boyfriend is thrown into the sea, of course. Then at number four, we have The Extraordinary Adventures of Saturnino Farandola, which is heralded as a milestone between two cinematic eras. Marcel Perez's 1913 adventure epic is a loving pastiche on Jules Verne and Georges Méliès. Based on Albert Robida's novel, it anticipates the retro-futuristic work of Carl Zeman and Terry Gilliam. The film is a forerunner in feminism, but problematic in its laissez-faire racism. It is Italy's first feature-length film with sci-fi trappings. At number three, we have The End of the World. This Danish moral tale from 1916 is the world's first apocalyptic film. August Blom's direction takes its sweet time to get going, but when the much-talked-about comet finally crashes towards the Earth, the film proves why it belongs among the classics. The special effects hold up surprisingly well even for today, and the images of post-apocalyptic desolation are haunting. At number two, we have A Trip to Mars, or Himmelskibbet, which, released in 1918, is the first serious movie to deal with a trip to a distant planet. Poetically filmed and featuring lavish Martian designs, this Danish space opera is at heart an endearing pacifist message in a time when the First World War was ravishing Europe. And coming in at number one, we have Homunculus. Originally released as six hour-long episodes, the scope and ambition of this movie stands head on shoulders over all other science fiction productions released in the 1910s. A huge success upon its release, the epic film follows the exploits of the soulless supervillain Homunculus, a creature created by science as he vows to find love or destroy humanity. Also, as a quick aside, you can watch a lot of these titles and others for free on archive.org. It's a great resource and they have high quality versions of rare prints. Definitely go check it out. Suffice to say that this list doesn't nearly cover all of the examples of early sci-fi and film, but it does cover the more well-known or at least influential early works that came out of Europe predominantly, being that the age of cinema didn't quite take off in the United States until the 20s outside of Nickelodeon parlors and viewing halls. So we'll save those examples, see, for the next decade dive as we charleston our way through the roaring 20s. Uh, regarding where else you can watch those early works, you might be able to catch a version uploaded on the YouTubes, or there are a number of archive sites like archive.org that have them available for viewing, and if you have access to a collegiate library, there are typically copies you can check out depending on whether your librarian is just regular rad or super rad. Up next, we have an awesome interview with guest Tim James. He's a super knowledgeable and insightful person whose nerdiness inspires me to read even more. Well, so tell me then. I tell me. I'm used to being on the other side. Of no, that's no, that's fine. I'm happy to. Yeah. So why why this whole science fiction? I mean, I've you know I've listened to a few of them, mm -hmm. but I mean, what so what prompted what prompted this in particular? I'm curious. The decades dive or the creation of science factual? I mean, I, well, I guess I guess both. But mm -hmm. if you want it to be more focused, we could talk about the decades one. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I'll do a, a bit of a ten thousand foot view on both, but. Basically, I found myself wanting to use an outlet for my vocal talents. I went to school for broadcast journalism, which is basically running a podcast, uh, you know, from an individual standpoint. And I felt like that part of my life was slipping away a little bit. So, you know, it was great writing and doing stand-up comedy. So that helped fuel the, you know, kind of inspiration behind 
thinking of doing something. I didn't have a topic yet, but I was like, you know what? I want to do something. So I saw a post, the same post that Tyus McCowan, who I've had on a couple of times from Euphonia, who's also on Shady Pines Radio. So I saw a post for Shady Pines and I was like, you know what? This is the time. I'm going to reach out and see, you know, what this is all about, you know, what the resource is. I listened for a little bit before messaging them and just was like, hey, you know, I have an idea about a comedy podcast. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, well, what does that look like? And we did a little bit of, you know, kind of brainstorming and development. And I realized that I needed a framing device. Mm -hmm. And since I'm a sci-fi nerd, I just a huge Star Trek nerd. Like I decided to pursue that as a you know kind of a vehicle nice and um you know it's uh it's it's been awesome i <laughs> was listening to the first episode and just listening to myself try to fill an hour sure yeah you know, it was, was difficult uh because you know it's like learning how to juggle time it's a lot of podcasting is time management mm-hmm. yeah like scheduling meeting with somebody and solo and podcasts amaze me mm-hmm. i mean they i'm just i know I could not do any one of the multitude of skills that they require. Mm. And I'm also aware that there are about like 7 million other skills that I'm not even, it's, it's the unknown unknowns problem. I just, I'm amazed when someone pulls it off. So I can, I can feel you being like, Oh my God, what's going on? Yeah. Well, you know, think about all of the unpaid hours that go in. I mean, I, I run one ad per episode Uh and at, you know, close to, 1200 unique listens mm. i'm at nine dollars and 58 cents ad revenue you know what i mean and like i can't even cash out until i hit 10 bucks so like it's i'm definitely not in it for the money you know what i mean like <laughs> it, it's more about community for me because like i was i was like okay well how do i combine comedy and sci-fi mm. and the interview component comes into play which sure, is what sure. we're doing right now yeah and you know, like it, it's it's a way for me to get to know the people in my community right and to showcase their nerdiness. Yeah. And at the end, typically I'll have a set so they can see how funny they are. And, you know, right. it, it was just like a, a good way to keep myself active as well. Yeah, you know? totally. And active within the community. So, nice. Yeah. Oh, man, I love, I mean, this is a term that's so freighted, so I'm always hesitant. But I love any of that kind of like entrepreneurship like just sort of being the kind of person who starts a thing like that is not where my disposition exists and i wish i were more that way because a lot of times i'm just like well let's just go and rewatch or reread the book that i've read a million times again and it's like you could spend two hours like building a new cool thing so i'm like I really, genuinely, my hat's off. Uh, I think that's cool. Thank you kindly. Yeah, I mean, well, so uh, to speak to what you just said, which is like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a repeater. Uh-huh. And I like to watch things over and over again because it's a comfort thing, really. Sure. I'm pretty sure that's like a tenet of psychology is like, you know, we repeatedly watch things in order to have a sense of uh, consistency in life. Mm-hmm. You know what's going to happen because life is the unknown unknowns that right. you were talking about, you know, right. it's, it's this constant unbroken stream of chaos. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> to want to read and experience and watch new things and then gain new perspectives on those things, you mm-hmm. know, because I have to do a bunch of research per topic as well, right. Which includes watching the episodes or reading the issues or what have you, or the novel at hand, watching uh, reviews on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I spend so much time on YouTube, it's not even funny. And I then, can relate. And then, of course, Wikipedia. Shout out Wikipedia. 
donate to them. I mean, I know that like it, a sure. lot of people think that Wikipedia is kind of a joke or whatever. Like anybody can write an article on Wikipedia, but like if you look at it pragmatically, like Wikipedia is a necessity. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if the day goes by that I'm not on Wikipedia. Yeah. I had some friends who were like, this guy, I, I, I apologize for forgetting the founder's name. Of Wikipedia? Yeah. Oh, I couldn't tell you. Uh, yeah. But but that they were like, I feel like, like this guy is, he's, he's privatizing the benefit and socializing the cost. Because it is a wiki. And I was like, I don't think that, like, of all the grifts that you could run. Yeah. I don't think that this is, like, the most op- – you're not optimizing, like, time for money. Like, sure. by just having – by setting up Wikipedia and then, like, could you please give me $3? Yeah. Like, if you're – can we curse on this? Oh, hell yeah. Like, if you're going to be a shitty person, there are lots of more time and cost-effective ways right. to be a shitty person than setting up the, the repository for all human knowledge. Yeah, yeah the modern-day <laughs> Alexandria. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, I mean, it's it's so funny to me. It's like, you know, and it's true. Like, if you get every – if you get a million people to donate a dollar after taxes, you've walked away with, you know, six-figure a, – a big six-figure. You know, yeah. like that's it's no joke. So there is money to be made, but yeah, I mean, like Children's International gleams more money from the public, right? Than, than something like Wikipedia. I mean, it's just so funny to me, like that people shit on it, like, oh well, the, you know, like anybody can write an article, but it's like, yeah, but they have a staff of people vetting that information constantly, right? You're not gonna be able to go into like the Abraham Lincoln wiki and just be like Abraham Lincoln known. For his radical sex orgies at the White House, people are going to be like, "Did you know that Abraham Lincoln was a gangster?" Yeah. Like, he used to keep a bunch of dildos in that top hat. Right. It's like, he, it's <laughs> Why do you like, think he wore it? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> smells like freedom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I totally, I totally get, uh, I get the appeal of that. Well, I'm glad you brought up Abraham Lincoln because that that kind of gets us into the mindset, the uh, the time frame, if you will. Sure. Of some of the more famous science fiction authors, at least, that we're going to get into here in a minute. Mm-hmm. But, folks, the voice you've, you've been hearing other than my own, this is Tim James. Hello, everybody. Hi, Tim. Thanks, Reese. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Uh, so, before we get started, do you, how can people find you on the internet? And I don't mean, like, find your location... Sure. Let's uh, yeah. I mean, let's try to keep that under <laughs> under our heads. Although I'm sure I'm location is on all of my apps, so it would be easy enough to track me down. I'm sure. I mean, Instagram. I guess it's just at Larry Choice Man. Okay. Uh, if you enjoy the two posts that I've made in the past decade or so, uh, I guess I should do more of it. I keep a low profile. I don't have a Twitter, and uh, you could find me. On some Facebook. Well, there's there's a, there's an uh, an old world charm to that. <laughs> yeah, so useful in the yeah. podcasting world. Yeah, true. Should have said something up. Uh, uh, t- yeah. Tim, did you fucking run for governor? Is, I, that, is that what I see over there? I see a Tim James for governor over here. Yeah. Well, I did. I Tim James did run for governor. Okay. And that's not me referring to myself in the third person. Ah. Uh, Tim James, I believe, ran for governor of Alabama okay. in this past election cycle, and I've had about seven people send me oh, merch. I, I see the the Bama now. I see yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. So so I've I've accumulated. And this a lot did of, seem a little murica for your sensibilities, right? That was. Yeah, that would be a bit odd if if I, if I lost and left Alabama with my tail between my legs and decided to resettle in the inner southeast of Portland, Oregon. There we go. That's how bad I am about keeping my location secret. I was uh, like, here's where you can find me. Yes. Well, out and about. We out won't, and about. We, yeah, we That's won't great. pinpoint that location. Sure. We'll just say 
Southeast Portland, which it is, it is beautiful to be here. It is a, is that snow? That is, it is snow. We're wow. supposed to get some snow today. My goodness. Well, praise Satan in all things. For uh, sure. The snow. Yeah, I'll take it. So, uh, what is your relationship to comedy, Tim? So, took the comedy class at Helium with Alex Falcone. Thought nice. it was great. Thought he was great. Amazing yes. comedian. Terrific teacher. Uh, enjoyed that. Did some open mics. Performing is not really my steez. Okay. Um, I mean, I like I like the people. Love that there's a robust community here in Portland. But I just, I prefer to do the writing. So I just, I do a lot of comedy writing. I'm involved in some sketch writing groups around the city. Uh, and then I do some just writing work with people all over the country. Like just, they'll send me stuff. I'll give them feedback. And I love doing that. That's much more satisfying to me than performing. And then, like we were t- talking about earlier, there's YouTube, which I'm on incessantly. For me, it's just a nice way to help me make sense of the world and to see some fresh perspectives, hopefully. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, it's, you know, the internet, that, I, that is what it's there for. It's unfortunately not what it's used for, oftentimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is cool how you can interact with an international or national community in ways that our predecessors couldn't. Yeah. Oh, it's dynamite. I mean, I got a I got a guy in San Antonio who I work with. I've got a, a couple of people in New York. There's an English girl. It's super fun. It's just fun also talking to people who are kind of doing the comedy grind in very different environments than Portland's. Like, Portland is, it's not sui generis, but it, it is kind of its own creature. Yeah, it's a microcosm. Right. It's a very particular kind of comedy, mm-hmm. and it's fun to just see how other people are kind of existing in that in that world. It's just broadening. And, I mean, world's a big place. It's nice to pick, like, a small niche to be, like, broadly familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I recently did, well, last year I did comedy in San Francisco and New York. Uh-huh. And just to see how the scenes are different and what flies there versus what wouldn't fly here. Sure. Content or contextually. Like, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it is interesting. Because, like, you, you do get lost a little bit in... Uh, in Portland comedy, sure, PC, if you will, right, right. <laughs> I think that's apt. Is so. I mean, is that the major difference that like more flies in San Francisco and New York stuff that would be sort of just well, New York's New, New York's New York, and, and like that's not to say that there aren't uh, quote unquote woke people in New York. Sure, there are, but there's also New York, right? Like right. they're there, like doing the comedy that is of their. Talk about a microcosm, like right. that culture of New York. Right. So it's you know it, it was interesting to see like different sets from different perspectives. That like I went with another comedian from Portland, and sometimes we look at each other like, okay, <laughs> like <laughs> funny stuff, but like you know like some terminology just like would likely upset people, right? Yeah, or some concepts would likely upset. People sure. In in Portland, which of course you know is not unreasonable. <laughs> totally. You know, but it's, it just it just goes to show the the difference in perspective in different cities for sure. San Francisco was more likened to Portland. Yeah. You know, yeah. There, there wasn't anything outright extreme or like jaw dropping. <laughs> right. Whereas comparison. in New York, you're like, wow, you're next generation Joey Diaz. Like you're that's some shit right there. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. A little bit. Totally yeah. get it. That's rude. That's fascinating. Huh. Okay. It used to be eight million stories. What now? It's like nine and a half million stories. Nine and a half million stories. Holy God! I mean, it's it is uh, it's gnarly out in New York, but I do love it. 
it's it, you you sometimes you're down the subway and you're like how does all of this work you see all the piping and like all the crazy shit and you're just like wow like layers on layers on layers of everything working like sometimes i wake up and i'm like oh society's still here that's fucking crazy to me yeah i can totally relate to that the fact of new york like i travel a, a lot for work and i've been to some like cities bigger than new york like i was in tokyo a few years ago and everything there runs, but it runs so well that you're like, I believe that this can happen. With New York, I feel like you're always kind of just like right on the razor's edge of absolute chaos and anarchy. Oh, <laughs> because yeah. like the pipes are exposed to this and that. It's like, it's this, I mean, same thing in, in India. If you go to like Mumbai or Delhi, mm. you're just like, yo, the, there are too many exposed wires like mm. in the middle of this daycare. <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's, I, I mean, India is my favorite place that I've ever been. A wonderful country, fascinating, complex. But New York is basically just like right on this edge because it has the default kind of American frustration and ready to boil over at any point. It like watching it all work. It's sort of weirdly affirming. Yeah, well, and I think that's what gives New York its flavor. It's yeah. steez, if you will. Sure, I believe that was a term I, that you, and, that and you brought will. out from two thousand and five. <laughs> I will. I will. I have not heard the word steez in quite some time, and uh, it was it was good to hear it out and about. Right, so, right. You, you, it's, you it's really... now going to be. It's now. It's it's going to be on the internet again. It's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe this is the start of something big. I hope um, so. You rarely catch a steez out in the wild. That's true. <laughs> That's true. It, the Philadelphian in me likes the sort of some of the OG expressions. So uh, there sure might be not. others coming. Hey, well, we'll we'll see because we are getting into the old school for sure. We are with our sci-fi. But what I want to learn first is what was your first exposure to sci-fi? So I never had a time in my life when science fiction wasn't a part of it because I have a significantly older brother who was into it real early. Sure. So I just grew up with it. Like I never had the experience of being like sort of a like a tween aged kid and then encountering it and it just blowing my mind. Well, how old are you? I'm 46 now. Okay. You know, from the time I was making memories, like I was probably being shown science fiction. Like had probably seen Star Wars say what you will, space opera, whatever. I had seen Star Wars before I had made memories of it, so I don't remember seeing Star Wars for the first time. No, but your brother grew up watching early, like early black and white, basically, early colored sci-fi on TV, probably. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he what, certainly... Born like the late, or well, born, I guess, in the late 60s. Born in the late 60s. Okay, so I was, I was giving him an extra decade. Yeah, I think he, I mean, he certainly saw black and white science fiction, but I think growing up, most of it was was in color, although he himself is like a film studies professor. Okay, so like cool. he has nice. a lot of interest in kind of the early era of science fiction, like what we're talking about. Man, today. film buff nerds are a special kind of nerd. Yes, they really are. Man, shout out Michael Garcia, Forgotten Fantasies. Uh-huh. He runs a few awesome shows out of Fourth Wall, so shout out Fourth Wall. Nice. PDX over on Hawthorne, go check them out. And all of the awesome theaters that we have here in Portland, Clinton Street, mm -hmm. also a definite shout out there. Clinton's um, great. But yeah, uh, does does anything stand out to you sci-fi wise? And I'm going to ask the same thing about literature because I know you're a bookworm. So yeah, the thing that I love about science fiction films is that it just it really does run the gamut. Like you have fun, thought provoking films like Arrival and Gattaca, shouting out. Not just Villeneuve, but Ted Chang, who wrote the source material uh, for Arrival. 
And then you also just have like the pulpiest of the pulpy, where it's like Rex Iron Star with his like yeah. lightsaber phallic substitute situation, you know, yes. vanquished the whatever. Yeah. Like, I kind of enjoy all of it. I go in a little bit more for like the headier science fiction. I don't yeah, think same. I, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't have a, I don't have a particular one that I identify with. Like, growing up, I really loved Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, and let's not go into a whole Star Wars y thing. No, it's not May yet. <laughs> right, 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 it's not. So, I think, I mean, I, I loved the original Blade Runner, certainly some problems with it, but I really enjoyed it. I like the new Blade Runner that people, I feel like, are, are dunking on unnecessarily. I think, Villeneuve is a cool director. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Uh, 2049, definitely, it's just a modern version of it, you know? Like, it's right. going to hit different, you know? It's it's also a continuation from a, like, genre-defining piece, if you will, or at least, like, a decade genre-defining piece, not to mention PKD's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Sure. I mean, you know, like, we, which just did a, an episode of the book report on PKD. Mm-hmm. Specifically, a scanner darkly. But scanner darkly is so good. That is one, uh, but that's that kind of heady sci-fi that I love. It makes you think. It makes you think on a societal and individual level, you know. Whereas Duck Rogers, well, yeah, Duck Rogers in the twenty-fourth of the half century, <laughs> right? I, which is thrilling. Like I love that, but it's not. It's not why I go to science fiction. Right. Yeah. Same. So, do you have a favorite sci-fi author or property? Sci-fi author, I think sci-fi author, just for the sheer, I don't know, it's a close-run race, honestly, between Portland's own Ursula Le Guin, uh, who is, her writing is so amazing, and uh, yeah, she really lived life to the fullest, and Samuel R. Delaney, who... Just the quality of his prose is really amazing. Uh, Delaney, I think, is a little bit more of a deep cut than Le Guin, but he's great. Uh, Octavia Butler's terrific. The person who I recently discovered, and this is a little more YA, but I found it I found it a fascinating read, was Becky Chambers. Oh, I'm not familiar. Becky Chambers writes this wild, I think it's called A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, is the first book in this series. It is basically violates every trope of just kind of adventure fiction. There's no actual antagonist. The entire story, it's basically like Star Trek, where you've just got a whole bunch of different species trying to make, just trying to get along together. And like some don't communicate verbally and some have like a, a war history with some of the other species. But it's just people of good faith trying to get along and then resolving the inevitable conflicts that come from cross-cultural contact and you're reading it and nothing happens like by rights you should be bored to tears by this but there's a way that she has about her prose constructing her prose that you're like i am fascinated with this like completely mundane it's a very like emotionally engaged and aware kind of science fiction it is very tangent from what my favorite stuff usually is, but I love the Wayfarer series by Becky Chambers. I think it's been the past decade that she's written it. I'll have to check it out. I, I love emotionally intelligent works in an engaging that are engaging. 
uh, Paulo Coelho comes to mind, like the alchemist, uh, you sure. know, like, which is, you know, it is an interesting story, but really it's more about the journey and kind of like life's intersectionalities. Mm-hmm. And kind of what I'm hearing from this series is, is that it's allegorical of the intersectionality that we experience in our own lives. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's something that, I, I think that's a great way to put it. I think Chambers, she does this really good thing really well, which is, I mean, I think that science fiction is generally all premised on on a what-if question. And yeah. sometimes the oh, what-if question yeah. is just literally, I, you were talking about PKD, you know, it's sort of, you're kind of looking at yourself through a scanner darkly a little. Like, yeah. you're looking at it kind of, tan- you're looking at your own world kind of tangent. And I think she does a great job of, without being too heavy-handed about it, it's a little heavy-handed because sure. it is kind of YA-ish. Yeah. Asking what your relationship is to conflict without, like, the your adversary in this conflict needing to be, like, vanquished by the wave motion cannon. You know, that it's just like, sometimes you just sit with conflict, and how does that happen? And you're like, oh, this is fun to read in a science fictional way. Like, this is a cool way to approach, like... Encouraging pro-social behavior, and I don't encouraging's a little strong, but you get it. You get it, podcast listener. <laughs> well, let's go back in the in the way way back machine. Sure, a time machine, if you will. Indeed. The so I've been researching like the earliest examples of of science fiction. Obviously, the long standing staple is Mary Shelley's eighteen from eighteen eighteen Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which. We all know the story. They're out you know, at Lord Byron's. They're getting high off of opium. They, they're stuck up there. There's a storm. They make a story. It changes the world, which is awesome. Sure. And Mary Shelley is awesome as a historical figure and just an individual. Held some very progressive beliefs and was very adamant, like priests, like pre, 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 hundred years pre suffragette kind of stuff. But I did realize that in 1616, Johann Valentin André wrote The Chemical Wedding, which oh, is a yeah. like Rosicrucian-influenced biblical-style story. But it has elements that you could consider science fiction in like the fantastical nature of... It's almost like in an ancient aliens kind of way, where you can reinterpret uh-huh. the text and context in a more modern viewpoint which is something that we're going to get into regarding the Industrial Revolution and science fiction. Uh-huh. It's interesting to me, like, now with a new lens, you can look back. Some of it is wishful thinking. I haven't read the piece. I've only read excerpts from it. Right. So I can't really speak to, like, as a whole story, is it science fiction or not? But it is an interesting concept to be able to look back. I'm just going to cut through a long-ass list real quick. Mm-hmm. Because this kind of lens can be applied to a number of works, and ones that people have identified are Thomas More's Utopia from 1516, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis in 1627, which I can de- that is a for shoresies. Atlantis yeah, in and of itself has always been an advanced civilization. Then, of course, uh, Johannes Kepler's Somnium from 1634. Uh-huh. Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World from 1666, Hail Satan. Uh-huh. Henry Neville's The Isle of Pines from 1688, which I'm not too familiar with. And Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels from 1726, jumping ahead a little bit there. But I've always thought that Gulliver's Travels was not only difficult to say, but uh, fantasy. Right, so he comes across an uh, island of miniature people, right? Like, right. But, although, okay, so 
I think the Gulliver's Travels that like that sort of we all know and love with like the island of Lilliput is very much more fantasy and kind of a thinly veiled power fantasy at that. But there are three other parts to Gulliver's Travels. Okay. Like, he goes to, after Lilliput, he goes to Brobdignag, where he's a Lilliputian to the Brobdignagians. Mm. And so you just sort of get to have that whole thing inverted, and everyone is looking at him like he's just this toy, he's this little doll. The You know, the fourth one, the the final section, is when he goes to, man, it's been a long time. but it, Yeah, I, uh, you've got great recall. He, <laughs> I think he, he goes to the horse island, and it's just an island of, like, super intelligent horses, the, uh, okay. the Winhams. And on Winham, like, they are essentially supposed to be our better angels looking at, like, when Gulliver is talking about in sort of a Pangloss in Candide kind of way. He's like, mm. and this is what my amazing world is like. And they're like, your world sounds fucked, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's terrible. <laughs> and so it's sort of swift, I feel like, is a little aspirational there. But the third section, which I remember probably the least well, so this is going to be great, is he basically goes to this hyper-technologically advanced world of these, like, academicians, these sort mm. of wizards. Okay. But their wizardry is definitely grounded in something technological. Okay. That's the only one that I think, that's the only section that I think really feels like science fictive in any kind of way. Okay. Yeah. The rest of them are just sort of like weird, like, you know, boy goes on adventure kind of thing. Right. Has that fantasy angle. But if you right. apply the lens to that last section, it could be, you know, added to this list. Okay. Totally. So okay. I, I'll have to reread it because um, I'm, I'm definitely always interested in things like that. So there's a quote from Moore's Utopia. There is no man this day living that can tell you of so many strange and unknown peoples and countries. It goes on further in the same passage. There's a familiar quote of to boldly go where no man has gone before, which Star Trek Shout out. opening. Yes, of course. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's it's interesting how. Something that was, what was the year that I said? 1516? 1516, yeah. That 450 years later <laughs> is influencing our culture. And, sure. I mean, that's that's so incredible to me. I mean, it's definitely the, you know, the idea that, that uh, you know, a person's reach should exceed his grasp, else what to heaven for kind of thing. Yeah. I think Man that who that's... plants a tree will never sit in his shade, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Right. And so you've got more with this idea. He's promoting this concept of a world that is both ideal, but utopia sort of has that double meaning. Like colloquially, it just means like a perfect world, but it really means like a, a, it means no world. It means a world that does not slash cannot exist. Cannot exist. Yeah. You know, yeah, inherently it, it is an impossibility. Right. And so, but at least, but even putting the idea out there, mm. you know, I mean, in a way, I'm not trying to, to glow up the American Constitution necessarily, but, you know, the idea it is, it could use a glow up for sure. <laughs> but the idea that, you know, we, the people, we're trying to get a more perfect union, mm -hmm. which is sort of implicitly, and I'm not trying to be all historian about it, but it, it is kind of utopian in the sense that it's never going to be perfect. No. We're just trying to steadily improve it. Yeah, it's a constant pursuit because it's something that you cannot attain. 
Totally, yeah. and that's what. And I mean, I think more it's like was the sum real. of all knowledge. You possibly you can't possibly have it. Yeah, you're just you're just creating a bigger island, which gives you a larger perimeter of ignorance that surrounds this increasingly large island of knowledge. Yeah, and we are all drowning in that ignorance, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that we're we're not doing ourselves any favors right now, but no, we yeah. sure aren't. Well. Speaking of kicking that whole thing off, like right. not doing ourselves any favors, I, I kind of want to talk about like how industrialization and modernization has brought about a shift in bringing forward sci-fi and also society, of course. But like we, we always write and tell stories about what we know and what we experience. Right. right. Yeah. So this time frame, you know, kind of brings about guys like H.G. Wells with War of the Worlds and Time Machine, which are pure sci-fi. Like, I mean, like, that, I would say, is visionary-level sci-fi of what really dictates, or dictated for a long time, like, what the parameters of, like, you would write about as a sci-fi writer. Yeah. It, it's totally. kind of like breaking the four-minute mile. Nobody thought you could do it, and then once somebody did it, everybody's, like, breaking world records all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, it's, it's that kind of tier Right. Then we have, you know, of course, like Jules Jules Verne uh, with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. or Under the Sea or Below the Sea? I always... I always thought it was Under the Sea, but it, maybe it is Below? I think it's Below. See, Which un, makes un, sense. Under the Sea yeah. is... Uh, yeah, please. Under the Sea is just the little mermaid. So I think I'm <laughs> conflagrating. Is it Below or is it Under? It, it, it's Under. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, I mean, so in the French, it's... Uh, I mean, yeah. Let's hear, let's hear your French. Well, it's it's Vermilieux sous le mer, sous les mers. Um, so under, yeah, under the sea. It should be under. I mean, yeah. sous, I think, is translated differently. But yeah, it says under. I right. was thinking little. I was like, it's probably my Little Mermaid fandom coming back to haunt. That's what I thought too. Yeah. Well, he also did uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and not to mention From the Earth to the Moon plus Around the Moon. Mm -hmm. which leads us into the inspiration behind Georges Méliès' 1902 Les Voyages dans les Lunes. That's mm -hmm. my French. I mean, you're which, crushing it, man. That was good French. I So I ordered something in French in Paris just to flex. Not that it's a language that I speak, but I, I mean, I, yeah, I dabble. Right. Whatever. <laughs> and the waiter says, Oh, no, you murder my tongue. And I was like... I'm about to. Right. <laughs> I am getting murdered. Yeah, I'm trying right to be now. nice, you and the rest of asshole. You. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, Paris, I feel like, is like, you could be a fluent French speaker from elsewhere in the country. Oh, and they yeah. would be like, oh, would you like to speak your native language? Right. And you're like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> but anywhere else in France, they'd be like, they oh, nice. your French is so wonderful. Yes. Man, uh, yeah. Thank they're, you. They're very kind. But we can speak English also. Yes. <laughs> they're like, right. They're, yeah. Like, they, they are appreciative, but right. they're like, this is still, like, I think all French people do kind of feel the way the Parisians feel, but they're much nicer about yes, it. Yes, they're less Parisian about it. <laughs> it's interesting how, you know, like, writing or creating stories based on the time, they literally shot a capsule out of a cannon with a bunch of astronomers in it and landed on the moon. They get out. This capsule's not pressurized. Right. There's no atmosphere on the moon. Yeah. Yeah, when they get there, there's like a whole scene, man. There's like a whole scene on the moon. You know, it's like and it's it's yeah. just it's silly to think of now, but like that was their understanding. They didn't sure. know that there wasn't an atmosphere on the moon. Like they're right. They 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 don't know the fact that we need a propellant 
to right. escape the pull of Earth's gravity and that a big yeah. old cannon isn't going to cut the mustard. That was going to be fine. Yeah. That's how we're doing it. That's, and this uh, is like a World War One look at howitzer thing, you know what I mean? Like, totally. Well, what did they have? Right. Know? That's what they had. Yeah. I mean, I love... You know, I mean, if we're if we're talking about the George Melier, uh we're playing a little fast and loose with the science factual part of science factual. Sure, here. Yeah. but like, <laughs> I'm totally with you on that. But I I do love see to me that that short film, which I think is wonderful. It's so much like the sort of like like boys' adventure kind of movie mm, of just yes. like we're going to like a foreign land you know the way that the selenites or selenites the native peoples oh yeah there they are definitely depicted in the same way that like european literature of the time was depicting the parts of the globe that they were imperializing right yeah absolutely and it's i mean and it's just it is startling to see how much that tracks but I think the movie is actually making fun of the fact that, like, French society was depicting people from other parts of the globe in this quote-unquote savage way. Like, it's a pretty anti-imperialist. Like, if you if you want to talk themes to that, it's kind of an anti-imperialist movie. Yeah, I wouldn't say just kind of. It is. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. flat out. I'm trying to give a hedge. No, yeah. no. I No no quarter for imperialists. Yeah, no, right. I, fuck that. No. <laughs> Here I, in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> got no space for that shit. Yeah. Super brave stance yeah. in Portland. <laughs> yeah, being anti-imperialist. Right. Yes, indeed. Science fiction has always put a microscope on society in you know, meaningful ways because not only are we writing what we know about, but we're writing in, in like, what could be. And I, that's what's always interesting, whether it's a dark take on it or a light or, you know, more uh, hopeful take on it. It's always interesting to me how it's been used as a tool to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, like, fantasy is always a moral-based thing, mm-hmm. more often than not. I don't want to say always, but it is more often than not the case. Sure. And you do see morals in sci-fi, especially more often recently with stuff like Black Mirror uh-huh. and, and you know, Twilight Zone or what have you. Yeah, but these are more epic stories, like around the world in eighty days. Mm-hmm. You know, dealing with all of the trials and tribulations of the day, but seeing how air travel is going to change the way that we interact as a society mm. and as a planet. Uh huh. Yeah, for sure. I think the idea of, like, the lineage to me is because, like, you go to the bookstore and it's, like, fantasy and science fiction. And it's, like, these are two, like, I like them both. But for some people, they're, like, oh, man, I don't, I wouldn't crack a science fiction book if my mother's life depended on it. Like, right. I wouldn't. And for others, it's, like, fantasy is just, like, little children's stories around a campfire. And I think the, the, the lineage is more, like, sort of myth down through a bunch of other things. And then you kind of arrive at fantasy, and fantasy is sort of spinning off other things, gothic, horror, yada, yada, yada. And science fiction, I think if it's really science fiction, you brought up the industrialization before. Like, science fiction is so... The reason why it takes root, I think, in the 20th century is that you just you are actually starting to see that human beings, by applying their reasoning... By applying their reason, rather, 
that they can create things that change the way that we engage with the natural world in a way that had never been seen prior, really prior to like the 1850s. All right. If we're dating it kind of late. And that is all of a sudden it is the measure of the measure of humans is not just humans themselves, but is the things that humans can use to sort of like bootstrap their way out of just like, what humanity experienced since time immemorial, which leads to, like, sort of more formal utopias, like, to kind of go with the Thomas More bit, but also dystopian literature usually has some kind of science fiction benefit because it's like, yo, we're going to create the machines that fuck us, like, pretty soon. Yeah, like the pump in The Gods Themselves uh, by by Asimov. You know, it's this thing that we stumbled upon, figured out how to exploit, and it's going to either destroy us or another universe that is like, hey, or dimension rather. And it's like, hey, we're actually going to like put this thing down, flip it and reverse it on you. Sorry that, you know, you <laughs> discovered <laughs> this, but you're fucked. I right. Mean, we, uh, I, I think like as a species, we are inquisitive, we're curious to our benefit and to our faults. Yeah. And double it down with hubris, and we've got, you know, like, where we are at now. You know, it, our technological advancements are wonderful, they're magnificent, they're awe-inspiring, they're connecting us in ways that I don't think that we are meant for. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was talking about this with Thomas Lundy, who's a, who's a oh, yeah. comedian. Oh, yeah, it's hilarious. And uh, we did Serial Experiments Lane. And we're talking about, you know, like, are we meant to be connected in the way that the internet has done and will build upon? Because that interconnectivity, if you think about things like Neuralink, we're kind of on the cusp of, like, a new... And with quantum computing, we're on the cusp of, like, a new technological revolution. I mean, have you messed around with the chat, with the chatbot AI? Oh, of course. I like, yeah. Like, I mean, I have, I can just tell that that I will, I will soon be unemployed because all I'm doing is messing with that. Like, I would ask it for advice and then I'd ask it to change the way in which it was delivering the advice. And I was like, these are really helpful, concrete things. Could you be say the same things, but shorter and with more sensitivity in my feelings? And it just does it. There's and it's wor- like, there's what? Wor- there's wordly as well. Just something as simple as wordly. Right. Yeah. You know, so, I, I mean, you know, it's, it is a gift and a curse. Because our economic system does not lend to this level of automation. Right. Because now if we become obsolete, you know, like, we're going to start having to produce soil and green in order to, like, sure, curb our general population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we, we won't go well, down that road. The, the one thing that I, that I wanted to say, you were talking about the Asimov, but the, the one that always comes to mind for me is, like, I guess, spoilers alert for a short story from 60 years ago. Uh <laughs> In Arthur C. Clarke's The Nine Billion Names of God. Sure. Like, the fact that they're basically, it is literally just about the Tibetan monks who are trying to, like, slowly identify the nine billion names of God. They learn about, like, early, like, ENIAC kind of computers. And they're like, could you install a computer in this Tibetan monastery and just, like, go flying through it? And it does. And so, like, the, you know, the, the Western people who'd flown to Tibet to... Because there is sort of like an imperial kind of element to it. They're like, all right, you know, we uh, we set up that computer 
to do their spiritual work, but, like, it's not going to do anything. And a guy, like, checks his watch and is like, oh, it should be coming, it should be identifying the nine billionth name of God right about now. And he looks over at his buddy, and his buddy's just looking up, and the stars are just, like, going out one by one by one. End of spoilers. But it's wild to see that. That is clearly a dystopian fear of what technology might bring. Or maybe it's some kind of, like, bringing about the New Jerusalem, you know, that, like, where the revelation's going to happen. But I find that that, to me, is what makes science fiction science fiction, is that there is some kind of grounding in the creations of humans being, like... What can we do with these? How is this going to change us? Is this going to change us in ways that we can't come back from? Like, is there a spiritual evolution that needs to accompany this kind of material technological evolution? Yeah, I, I think I think that's an excellent point, and I think that's something that's missing from this whole thing. Uh, and I, I think that's what good science fiction writing lends to is is that thought as well. Is like, sure, we can talk about cool technology all day and night, but what is what does it mean? For us, what does it mean for me? Are we going to persist as a species? Because, like, I mean, if you think about, you know, what does this mean for us? Uh, look at just look at nuclear development. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in a the sense of of weaponry or in the sense of generating power, both ways we've been successful, but it has been detrimental largely to our psyches and our environment, our everything. Right. We create all of these things. You know, I mean, I hate the, like, Silicon Valley mantra of, like, move fast and break things. Mm. I mean, I get it. Like, I understand that that's part of what Capitalism Silicon Valley is all about. Capitalism is yeah. about. But in a way, it is also kind of a distillation of what humans are all about. Like, we're oh, pretty sure. reckless. Like, oh, we yeah. fuck each other up. Like, yes. we're just not. We We tend to leap before we look. And while that does thin the herd out in some ways, like in a Darwinian, it, sense, in yeah. a Darwinian sense, it also like when you're going to be reckless, if you're not one of the ones that falls off the cliff, you're going to have sort of an evolutionary advantage. And so we aren't selected for like kind of like cautious. I mean, if you've you know, we've seen idiocracy. <laughs> Oh, like yeah. we're not we're not selecting for fucking like oh well let's make sure that like our lives are stable before we have children it's just like let me put it in everything and like have as many kids as possible yes so the and the fact that we just we build things without thinking it through is very on brand for humanity <laughs> it sure is and you know i think that you know, science fiction literature has done a good job at helping people try to make sense of what it is that we're doing, like, of, of, of the trajectory that we're on. Because for what it's worth, I don't think that individuals can necessarily change the status quo because humanity is its own organism, right? Like, so we're, we're on a trajectory whether or not I like it as an individual. Right. So if I find another individual who can put to paper or put to film a perspective that I can either learn from or relate to that is a very powerful thing and i think that science fiction is a genre that has you know fostered that development it's you know i that i think is a is an awesome point i mean just the fact that being able to identify sort of humanity as 
greater than the sum of the set of humans, I think is really important. But I, what I think is weird about science fiction is that, like, every every major problem that we generally face as humanity, the organism, is almost axiomatically a collective action problem. Like, climate change, collective action problem. Like, fucking COVID was collective action problem. How are we going to deal with this thing? Like, and I realize that collective... Not well. Yeah, not well. <laughs> <Right>. Spoiler <laughs> uh, for the past few years. Uh, horribly. Um, but science fiction also definitely, especially some of the younger stuff, is so much about... You know, the kind of classic hero's journey, sort of Luke Skywalker-y kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's in a way that's sort of at the core of the Star Wars, Star Trek divide, right? Sure. That you've got sort of this is like an individual or an individual's family's adventure. And Star Trek is like, hey, let's all figure out how we can work together as part of this well-functioning blah, yeah, blah, blah. This blah. is humanity. Well, not humanity's adventure, but this is life's adventure. This is life's the, adventure. The galaxy's adventure, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's so it just I find I find there to be something cool about science fiction is the interesting tension between the individualism that is sort of baked into some of the early stories especially and then the fact that it's it it suggests at its sort of most heady like collective solutions like humanity working together as a group to solve humanity's problems god wouldn't that be nice wouldn't it be yeah but i but so much out there is tr like like kim stanley robinson always does this shit mm. like with like his mars trilogy like there are the individual characters but they actually are working together they're all scientists trying to work together his some of his recent stuff is about like Geopolitical bureaucracy trying to solve shit. Well, alternatively, we have Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, where you go there, totally. and everything goes to shit, and you completely destroy another culture be with your, yes. you know, like influence. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it's not all roses and lilac one. No, uh, but yeah, it just. I mean, it go and it goes back to some of the early stuff too. That you have things like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You have things like The Time Machine. You have, like, all the H.G. Wells stuff. Really is, like, kind of going out on an adventure. There isn't kind of a broader sensibility. But as the genre has matured and has sort of gone away from the just, like, the adventure tale of going to a strange foreign land, mm -hmm. it's... I mean, I think... I'm not praising sophistication. Like, I love that old stuff. Uh, I'm not praising sophistication necessarily, but I think as the genre has matured, they've realized you can do a bunch of other things with it, which makes it... I don't know. I mean, science fiction today is really fun. The old stuff is great, but it's yeah, neat Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. You know, it's. It, I think that, like, ingenuity or inventiveness begets inventiveness. Yeah. So... Kind of like when that bubble was popped of new science or like yeah mid eighteen hundreds science fiction, because like it, it, and I, I will put Frankenstein in an earlier category simply, totally. simply because it was like electricity was becoming big, right. and you know autopsy and and medical and physical sciences weren't vilified as much anymore. So to have a horror story that has those elements, like I said, you know science fiction we were talking about it always speaks to the times, but. There was nothing like a time machine mm -hmm. that was purely conceptual in its own right, and I think like like the, that era of things, or like a submarine. You know, sure, uh, Da Vinci had thought of these things on, right. on, a, on a higher level some time before, but using not it, widespread using, enough, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, the first successful submarine was made for the Confederacy in the Civil War. Right. And so it's, it's kind of that same time frame. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's interesting how, like, yeah, we could use a fucking submarine, right? Like, <laughs> let's totally. do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's, I mean, there have been so many interviews with, uh, with Le- the late Leonard Nimoy, Spock mm. from Star Trek. R.I.P. Yeah. And he, that, like, he would get invited to tour, like, the Jet Propulsion Lab uh, in California because people had been really inspired and they're like, oh, like, look at what we're doing. And he was like, yo, I'm a photographer and a poet and an actor. Like, I don't know shit about this. But he had learned (laughs) that he sort of needed to, that the role didn't stop when the camera stopped rolling. That he basically was like, he would just say to these brilliant scientists, he'd be like, well, it sounds like you're on the right track, you know, and they were delighted. He was like, they were delighted. Like, they just wanted Spock, who had, like, helped get him through high school and middle school. Yeah. Like, was approving of them. And science fiction can be both a reflection of the time, but it can also inspire future developments, future investments in like the idea that look at technology now and look at what technology might be. Science fiction's been doing that like to its readers and its viewers for a long time. Over 200 years. 200 years. Yeah, easily. For sure. You know, you asked me earlier why did I make a science fiction podcast? Yeah. It's largely for the reasons that you were just detailing. It's the fact that I, it helps me make sense of my world. It helps me feel related to new ideas and what people are able to think and envision. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to hear other people's perspectives and how, because I only know it from my own perspective and from whatever nerds on the internet happen to share their opinion in periodicals. You know, so it's, it, it, it is fascinating to me the way that, it has framed our perspective literally for the last 200 years. Yeah, it, it is. That, that's, that's why a science fiction podcast. Right. So, you know, I, I thank you, Tim, for, you know, traveling through time with me. Oh yeah. And, I uh, mean, I, you know, I hope we talked stuff out. Yeah. some more about the, I hope we talked enough about the OG stuff, but it was great. I mean, talking science fiction is awesome. Well, the OG stuff lends to the new stuff. I mean, it, it it is everything, right? Like, I mean, you can you can make parallels between old and new, not only in storytelling and and you know, like framing devices, but just the way that it makes you feel or makes you think. Yeah, you know, I, I think those are are staples of and requirements of the genre. Yeah, man. I mean, we didn't we didn't get to hear before being there. Like, even if you find the old stuff. To feel old, like it's—I yeah. don't know. I mean, or I'm not the, as technologically involved, right? I mean, I'm a historian uh, professionally, and I just love getting to see that trajectory. Like it—it it just helps me love on the stuff, the new, the cool new stuff that's coming out now. I'm like, I, I kind of see how you got here. Like, I like that. It's you know, it's like seeing a parent with a child. <laughs> you get to be like, oh, all right, I, you're. You're being a dick. I guess that's your parents. Like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a little dark, but but it's how it is how I feel. Well, and that's all I expect from you. That's I appreciate that's that. that. But it's, you know, let me ask you this: and what's com- what's coming up in your life? Like, with, like tell tell me something exciting that we can all share in with you, Tim James. Oh, I mean, I think that what I'm going to try to do is. Get to get an apartment in Japan for work for like a month. That's cool. And uh, I'm hoping that I can do that. I have a cheap ticket. I hope I can find a cheap 
apartment and just get to like talk about a science fictional place. I had to go there for work at one point and just I just want to get deep into the Tokyo experience. I'm going to be real like middle-aged Haruki Murakamiing it up like seriously. That sounds so be good. cool as hell. Well, if any listeners have a lead on an apartment in Japan, that would be fantastic. Anywhere. Yeah. Any, <laughs> any part of Japan. Yeah. I would live anywhere in Japan. The, the trains are fast enough. They, I mean, they're so nice, dude. Yeah. If, if one thing we could we should lend from science fiction in this country is infrastructure build. Right. Because right. when when you leave the movie theater after seeing like a near future society, and your axle falls out from all the potholes and shit. Right. There's a little bit of a disconnect. <laughs> yeah, that is that is I think an unfilled niche in science yeah. fiction. I mean, maybe you should write that. Public it's just, work science fiction. Yeah, public work science fiction. <laughs> like absolutely. Yeah, I think I, that I, I think mean, this is a collab in the making. Right. It's a little. I mean, <laughs> I feel like there are probably some people who are horny for infrastructure. So you oh, can, I know there are. So absolutely, I think that's I think that's a funny idea. Something to be explored at a later date. Indeed. Well, thanks again, Tim. Reese, thank you so much. This was fun. Cheers, bud. Take care. Now, there's a lot more sci-fi out there to be discussed, especially in the form of literature for the earliest examples, so make sure to check out the next chapter of the book report with Noah Linsk, where we will be diving further into the plot points of some of the more notable works from the 19th century, as well as a segment by Cassie Rood on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That episode will drop on Spotify by the end of January, perhaps the turn of February, but the running theme will persist insofar as that the book report will be posting monthly decade dives concurrently with Science Factual so that you, the listener, can nerd out even harder than ever before. I'd like to thank my sources for this episode, which include the very 2003-looking flickchart.com, scifiist.com, even though that looks like scifist, The Atlantic Online, wired.com, whythebookwins.com, and of course, Wikipedia. Because if it's on Wikipedia, it must be true. I mean, it's just gotta be true. Next week's episode wraps up the month of January with the cult classic Barbarella. I got to sit down with another badass broad, the very funny Emily June, host of the Northwest Comedy Hour on Shady Pines Radio, to dive into the classic 1968 Jane Fonda sexploitation vehicle. That episode airs Tuesday, January 31st from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Catch us online at ShadyPinesRadio.com or download the Shady Pines Radio app for iOS and Android today for 24-7 access to amazing content from Portland and beyond. If you're looking for your comedy fix around town, do yourself a favor and check out the ever-growing and changing list of awesome shows and mics available on LaughsPDX.com your resource for comedy in Portland. Until next time, my fellow nerds, live long and prosper.